This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. There's headlines about the chaos, this and that. Yesterday, our colleagues on the other side of the aisle were tweeting their bags of popcorn that they had out. They love it. The schadenfreude is palpable. But I think my friends on the Democratic side misunderstand what's happening here. Sure, it looks messy. But democracy is messy. Democracy is messy by, by design. You just listened to Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher whine about how Democrats are laughing at the Republican Party. But it's not just Democrats who are laughing at the Republican Party. And I can assure you, this isn't about democracy coming from the party who has spit in the faces of anyone who believes in democracy over the course of the last couple of years. This debacle is hilarious because it shows that the Republican Party, they're just not serious. So I record this right as Kevin McCarthy lost his sixth vote to become the House Speaker, with 19 Republicans switching from Jim Jordan to Byron Donalds on the fourth vote after he joined them in voting for Jim Jordan on the third vote. And all of this comes after failed closed-door negotiations that reportedly got heated and this debacle has been so embarrassing that donald trump himself had to step in to try to save mccarthy writing on truth social vote for kevin close the deal take the victory and later adding kevin mccarthy will do a great job and maybe even a great job just watch but even donald trump could not save kevin mccarthy as he was met with mockery by the individuals who are refusing to vote for kevin mccarthy take a look at how lauren bobert responded to donald trump so let's work together let's stop with the campaign smears and tactics to get people to turn against us even having my favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off i think it actually needs to be reversed the president needs to tell kevin mccarthy that Sir, you do not have the votes, and it's time to withdraw. And with that, I yield. Thank you. So they are not relenting. And you see an open revolt against Kevin McCarthy and an all-out mutiny, and things are deteriorating because you have Republican infighting that is escalating as a result of this debacle. Matt Gates even responded to Trump by saying, sad, this changes neither my view of McCarthy nor Trump nor my vote. Now, Gates actually took it a step further by suggesting that Kevin McCarthy was breaking the law by unlawfully occupying the Speaker's office, saying Kevin McCarthy is not the Speaker of the House. He lost three consecutive votes at the time. Today, I'm demanding answers from the architect of the Capitol. So you have Trump sycophants within the GOP openly rebelling against Donald Trump. And my favorite response to the response from the 19 or 20 now that are rebelling against Kevin McCarthy came from Tony Gonzalez, who basically said, Ooh, they're going against Daddy Trump, tisk tisk on Fox News. His response was amazing and just immature, but 
so good. Let's listen. I'm a little I'm a little upset. You know, here we had President Trump come out with a very powerful endorsement of Kevin McCarthy. And you have 20 members of our caucus essentially thumb their nose at the former president saying we are above. It's not above the house. We are above the party. How dare you defy father? Daddy, daddy, did you see they're not listening to you, daddy? I'm listening, daddy. I'm a good boy, daddy. <laughs> And and to be honest, to be fair to Tony Gonzalez, which I don't have to be, but to be fair to him, I did actually think that Trump saying vote for McCarthy would maybe hold a little bit more sway. But you can see that Donald Trump is losing his hold on the Republican Party when even the biggest Kool-Aid drinkers are rebelling. And the infighting is getting really, really bad. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene calling out Matt Gates, saying he's a liar publicly. Let's listen. When you have Matt Gates and the rest of the group going out there saying Jim Jordan's going to be speaker, but yet Jim Jordan doesn't want to be speaker. That's lying to the American people, Charlie. And I'm not going to support any lying to the American people. That was good, right? But it gets so much better than that. Listen to her call out other Republicans by name. Well, you just saw Byron Donald's only got 20 people. Byron Donald is not going to gain in support. He's not even a serious candidate. So people need to understand who they're following. Scott Perry? Scott Perry voted for gay marriage that is right correct. before his that general right. election. That is correct. Voted for it, and he's chairman, and he's leading this fight against Kevin McCarthy. And so I'm sick of these people that are that have done things that are hypocritical, truly hypocritical, and the base would hate them for it, and they would be screaming at them for it. But the base doesn't know because the only bad, the only person they're hearing being chewed apart is Kevin McCarthy. Well, Scott Perry, who's leading the charge against other Republicans, he voted for gay marriage. <gasps> By the way, I have a terrible Marjorie Green accent. I have a terrible Southern accent in general. But I, I just love the gotchas that they're all playing against each other. Like we see open infighting within the GOP and it is getting uglier and uglier as time goes on. And to be fair to Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think that from a pragmatic standpoint, she does have the winning argument here. She pointed out via Twitter that the Republicans who are opposing McCarthy have no plan except never Kevin. It's a total failure. And it pains me to say this, but that's actually an astute observation from Marjorie Taylor Greene because she's right. The folks who are opposing Kevin McCarthy, they're doing so all because of political theater and there's no real policy disagreement at the core of this entire kerfuffle and it really doesn't even matter anyways because they only control the house and not the senate so it's not like they can get anything that they want passed because if they pass something too absurd biden would simply veto it and kevin mccarthy has already agreed to all of the investigations and impeachments and all the bullshit that they want so what exactly is the reason for all of this that's the question that we're all asking and nobody really has an answer it's all political theater to build up their own name recognition and it makes them look even more unreasonable considering that kevin mccarthy has already made major concessions he's agreed to allow just five rank and file members of the house to force a vote of no confidence on him but they're demanding that just one republican should be allowed to trigger a vote of no confidence against kevin mccarthy which is incredibly unrealistic the fact that he budged on the five member thing in and of itself is pretty huge considering that you need half of members to force a vote of no confidence, but he's giving them a pretty huge gift and they're proving how unreasonable they are. And so to be in this situation where Marjorie Taylor Greene looks like the voice of reason, it's making the entire Republican Party look just terrible. But 
the penalty for being reasonable in the Republican Party, even if traditionally that's not how you behave, is full-on excommunication. Because Marjorie Taylor Greene's former associate, neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes, is basically declaring war on her. So Patriot Takes on Twitter shared some of his posts on Telegram, and he writes, Marjorie staked her political career on a McCarthy speakership that she is now realizing will never happen. She should go on home, back to Georgia, and repair her failed marriage instead of trying to play politics with the boys because she sucks at it. He went on to make fun of her for her Jewish space laser conspiracy theory and hinted that they had dirt on her, saying, Paul and Jason, might be a good time to publish that recording from the AFPAC 3 green room. You know the one I'm talking about. So this is incredible because you have Republicans openly fighting against each other and both sides refuse to relent and both sides are now threatening to destroy the other. And it's just glorious. It's beautiful to watch. It makes the Republican Party look like a circus. And I think that this is a win for America. I hope that this goes on for as long as it possibly can. I hope that it's more drawn out because I love watching this shit show unfold. Now, the question is, how exactly is this going to end? Well, it could end in a number of ways. Kevin McCarthy could actually become the speaker. They could relent. Or he can choose to bow out, and that would pave the way for Steve Scalise, the second highest ranking Republican, to become the speaker. And if he fails and is also forced to drop out, then the next in line would be Elise Stefanik. Or we could see a compromise. The Hill reports that Republicans like Don Bacon hinted at the prospect of reaching out to Democrats who'd support a consensus candidate, and Ro Khanna has reportedly been open to that idea. Or Kevin McCarthy could still become speaker at the end of the day if enough Democrats choose to bail him out and vote present, which would lower the vote threshold uh, needed to become speaker. So we don't know what's going to happen, how this will transpire, and... I hope that it's as drawn out and uh, grueling as it possibly can be. And I hope the Democrats don't choose to bail out Republicans and Kevin McCarthy because this is the bed that they've made for themselves. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because nothing is going to get accomplished in this Congress anyway, right? We're going to see anything that the House passes be rejected by the Senate or ultimately vetoed by Joe Biden. And all they're going to do once they're seated and sworn in is do a bunch of dumb investigations that are completely pointless. They're going to try to impeach Biden. They're not going to accomplish anything. So I think the best scenario here is to just let them sink, watch them attack each other. Hopefully this fuels even more infighting for the future and just grab your popcorn and enjoy it because these Republicans are genuinely terrible people and the fact that they're all at each other's throats is a victory for the country and the world, literally. And, and when you were running, you had to do some Uber work, right? You worked as an Uber driver, uh, yeah, because you needed to <laughs> you needed to live while you were also running for yeah for for Congress. What's it going to be like up here? I mean, this is not cheap. Do you have to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not cheap. I'm dealing with it with it right now. Getting denied from apartments, trying to figure out where to live because I have bad credit. Uh, I'm probably just going to have to like couch surf for a little bit. You just listened to 25-year-old Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost explain the volatile housing situation members of Congress find themselves in if they're elected from the working class and they don't already have wealth. In fact, back in 2018, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said something similar in an interview with the New York Times, telling them the transition period will be very unusual because I can't really take a salary. I have three months without a salary before I'm a member of Congress. So unless you come from wealth, your housing situation will be 
pretty precarious, at least temporarily, until you get your first check. Now, I feel like this is obvious to most people, but the reason why we're talking about this is because the Republican Party tried to use that clip that we just watched to attack Maxwell Frost and make it seem as if he's lying about his current situation. RNC Research tweeted out, Florida Democrat Congressman-elect Maxwell Frost, whose salary as a member of Congress will be $174,000 per year, says he's, quote, probably just going to have to like couch surf for a little bit. Now, as you're going to find out, this tweet did not go well for them. It was humiliating because not only is it just on its face, deeply unserious and disingenuous, but Maxwell's response was so good that he ratioed them into oblivion. So their tweet got just over 2,000 likes, but this response by Maxwell Frost got nearly 120,000 likes. And here's what he says here. LOL, so out of touch that they don't understand how renting an apartment works. Let me break this down. I don't get my first paycheck till February, and I don't have a lot of money. When you move into an apartment, you pay first, deposit sometimes last, and for furniture. He adds, so much for that RNC research. Yeah, and that's a great follow-up because all they had to do was Google the cost of living in Washington, D.C. to find out that if you're just a normal person, it's pretty expensive. This is courtesy of Rent.com, but they report that the average cost of rent in D.C. as of 2023 is $1,962 a month for a studio, $2,443 for a one-bedroom, and $3,239 for a two-bedroom apartment. And again, as Maxwell Frost pointed out, this isn't taken into account the first and sometimes last month of rent, move-in costs. You're going to have to rent a U-Haul truck and get all of your belongings to DC or purchase new belongings and also credit. Some people just don't get approved for that or they have bad rental history. So this is something that demonstrates how out of touch the GOP is, but it also demonstrates a broader issue that they have and why they're not appealing to younger people. As Victor Shee pointed out, which was retweeted by Maxwell Frost, the tweet by RNC Research earlier attacking Maxwell Frost is so ignorant and proves exactly why the vast majority of Gen Z isn't voting for them. They have no desire to listen to us, they have no desire to understand our concerns, and they have no desire to make our lives better. And Victor's absolutely correct about that. This last election proved that the GOP is performing poorly with younger generations. But what are they doing to improve that? Are they trying to address our needs, tackle climate change, or even talk about it in a serious manner, address the housing crisis, student debt? No, everything that they're doing, every action indicates that they want our lives and future to be worse. They are explicitly vindictive and antagonistic towards two generations. So what exactly do they expect? Are they surprised that Zoomers and millennials don't like them after they've done everything to spit in our faces? They shouldn't be. In fact, an article published in Financial Times discusses how millennials, unlike their predecessors, are not becoming more conservative as they get older. And this graphic demonstrates that this trend actually holds true in both the United States and the UK. And you can see that the vote shares of Tories and Republicans are declining with millennials. And with respect to Zoomers, the GOP's policies are so unpopular that it's causing them to change decisions that they make, major life decisions that they make. CNBC published an article that discusses a best colleges survey, which finds that 39% of prospective undergraduates are basing their decision on which state to attend college in on abortion access, and 43% of current undergrads are reevaluating whether or not they want to remain in a state that they're currently going to 
College Inn following the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And I know people personally who can't wait to finish college because they're in a red state without abortion access, a very conservative state, and they want to get out ASAP. And with regard to that article from CNBC, one student literally said that as soon as they finish college, they don't want to just get out of a red state. They want to leave the country because it's a scary time in America where women are once again treated as second class citizens, overtly so. So this is why young people don't like the GOP. This is why the vote share of Republicans is actually decreasing among millennials. It's because they don't even not care about us. Again, they are openly hostile towards us and what we want and what we need, and they don't even care to try to learn. They're just openly ignorant, and they wear that ignorance as a badge of honor and still expect young people to support them in elections. But it's hurting them, and they just they don't care. They figure, why try to win people over when you can just try to rig elections through gerrymandering or the legal system? Now, keep in mind that the 116th Congress was comprised mostly of millionaires, according to Open Secrets, and I'm sure that the 117th Congress will be no different. But that's why RNC research instinctively saw what Maxwell Frost said and thought, oh, we should attack him. Because if you're making $174,000 per year, you very clearly must have money. In fact, even though Maxwell Frost hasn't gotten his first paycheck yet, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't already have the money as a working class consumer to put down a down payment. It's inconceivable that he wouldn't have the credit needed to get approved or the good rental history needed to be approved for an apartment in D.C. for his new job because... I mean, that's their experience exclusively. Most members of Congress are extremely rich. They come from wealth and they've never had to think about these things. They probably don't even know that you need a lot of money up front to get an apartment. They probably don't even know that you need good credit to be approved for things like cars, like apartments, because that's the economy that we're living in. But if you're detached from that, then these things aren't going to be obvious to you, right? Which is why they decided to attack him because they thought, oh my God, how dare you complain about not being able to get an apartment when you're making this money as a member of Congress, failing to consider that he wasn't already wealthy before getting elected. And it's ironic that they were trying to appeal to working class people with that attack on Maxwell Frost because they're trying to make it seem as if he's elitist for complaining about money when he's going to be making a lot of money as a member of Congress. But again, I think most people understand that when you get a new job, you're still going to struggle for a while until you get that first check. And oftentimes, when you get that first check, there's a lot of bills that are due money that you borrowed that you have to pay back to people. So it's just, they're so out of touch. And with every single thing that they do, even if they try to appeal to working class people, they still come off as out of touch and elitist. And that's because they are out of touch and elitist. And this tweet demonstrated that as clear as day, but thankfully Maxwell Frost capitalized on that opportunity. And that tells me that he's gonna be a good member of Congress because he's able of communicating what average Americans go through. So I have high hopes for him. So um, yeah, this was uh, very entertaining to watch unfold.
Donald Trump is still a little bit hurt about the fact that Republicans and many mainstream news pundits blamed him for the GOP's election losses in 2022. And as a result, he's still coping by saying, mm, actually, it's not me. And something that he says here is really interesting. And I think that he's correct to a degree. The problem with what he's saying here is that he is assuming that we're not also going to think that he's as culpable as the people who he's accusing. So he wrote this via Truth Social. It wasn't my fault that the Republicans didn't live up to expectations in the midterms. I was 233 to 20. It was the abortion issues handled poorly by many Republicans, especially those that firmly insisted on no exceptions, even in the case of rape incest or life of the mother that lost large numbers of voters also the people that pushed so hard for decades against abortion got their wish from the u.s supreme court and just plain disappeared not to be seen again plus mitch stupid monies maybe he's saying mitch's stupid ass i don't really know what he's saying but mitch wasn't necessarily the one who endorsed bad candidates like you did herschel walker um Dr. Oz. But what he's saying there, I think that there is some truth to it. The problem is that he's only admitting to half of the problem here. Yes, it is indeed the case that once Roe v. Wade was overturned, Republicans let their freak flags fly and they kind of showed to the world that they really are a threat immediately saying we should ban abortion in all 50 states. There should be no exceptions for rape or incest. But it's just in general, abortion as an issue is not a winner for the GOP. And Trump, to his credit, actually was aware of this. So back in June, former President Donald Trump, who installed a solid conservative majority on the Supreme Court, heralded the court's overturning of Roe v. Wade as the biggest win for life in a generation. Mr. Trump has, however, privately expressed concern that the high court's decision could motivate Democrats ahead of the midterm elections, hurting Republicans who otherwise face a favorable political climate, according to a person familiar with his thinking. So support for exceptions aside, Trump knew that the issue of abortion would come back to bite Republicans in the ass, although he did also believe reportedly that it would help shore up the GOP's base and more battleground states. But the problem is that if you can't win independence, if you're turning off normies, you're going to lose. But Trump is trying to find some ways to obfuscate his own problems in the way that he contributed to the GOP not winning. I mean, they still won, right? But not winning as big as it was predicted by polls and pundits. So he's trying to say it's all them and not me. But if it is the case that he thinks that the GOP's extremist position on abortion or position on abortion, more broadly speaking, is an issue, well, he's responsible for that. He has taken credit for nominating the Supreme Court justices who ultimately voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. And he did pander to extremists on this issue because on the campaign trail back in 2016, remember how he literally raised the specter of punishing women who got abortions. Let's watch. Do you believe in punishment for abortion? Yes or no? Is a principle? Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. 10 no, cents, 10 years? I don't what? know. That I don't know. That well, why I don't not? Know. I don't you know. You take positions and everything else. I frankly, I do take positions and everything else. It's a very complicated position. Yes, I'm asking, you're running no, for no. president. I'm not. Chris, I'm asking you, Chris, what should a woman face no, no, if she chooses I, I to have I'm an abortion? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play not? that game. Yeah, so he played his role too, but let's be very clear and address the elephant in the room. Donald Trump doesn't give a damn about abortion. He doesn't care about what did or didn't hurt Republicans. For him, this is all about 
whether or not he's going to take blame or not. And currently, it's the case, I think, arguably, that most Republicans view him as one of the main reasons, if not the sole reason, that the Republican Party underperformed in the 2022 midterms. And he needs to rehabilitate his own record because he's running a new campaign, the 2024 presidential campaign. And if they view him as an electoral liability, that's going to hurt his chances. And the polls have kind of indicated that he is in a bit of trouble when juxtaposed against Ron DeSantis or Biden in a general hypothetical matchup. So he's trying to save face currently, and that's what this is about. He doesn't care about the GOP's position on abortion. They could be pro-choice for all he cares. He just wants to make sure that he doesn't get blamed because it's never been about the GOP or the issues. It's always about what benefits him exclusively. And he further demonstrated this by sharing an article that encouraged him to run third party instead of within the Republican Party, which means he'd play spoiler and destroy the GOP's chances of winning back the White House in 2024. Per Rolling Stone, Trump promoted an article from conservative publication American Greatness by writer Dan Galerter. Galerter compared Trump to the late president Teddy Roosevelt, whose run for a third term as president and third party bid in 1912 was widely blamed for splitting Republican ranks and handing over the election to Democratic candidate Woodrow Wilson. Although Galerter admits that Trump running as a third party candidate in 2024 would likely meet a similar fate, he declares his allegiance to the former president and suggests a Republican loss would teach the corrupt gravy train a lesson. I love how it's assumed that Trump isn't part of that corrupt gravy train as he explicitly profited from being president. His businesses were booming. His hotels were booming while he was president. I mean, it's influence peddling, but I guess Trump is outside of that, and he's also not part of the swamp in D.C., even though he was the embodiment of the swamp, but that's neither here nor there. What Trump is doing here is tacitly threatening the GOP. He's saying, if you don't vote for me, we're all going to lose together, because if you nominate Ron DeSantis, if you try to screw me over, that is to the RNC and the GOP establishment, I will make sure you all suffer the consequences. So in a way... I love that he's doing this because he's kind of holding the Republican Party hostage, and he has been doing that for years, but he's saying, I'll put it all on the line. I will crush all of our chances if the base doesn't nominate me, if leadership does not explicitly and unequivocally support me. And it's great to see it. This would be the most hilarious outcome of the 2024 GOP presidential primary. That's even possible, and the GOP would be shrieking at the top of their lungs, but, oh my God, I hope he does this. It would be hilarious. But it's because of things like this. It's because of the leverage that he still has, which is why the GOP leadership has to play into Trump's little game. But privately, they talk shit about him, even though publicly they praise him. For example, the third-ranking Republican in the House, Elise Stefanik, reportedly described Trump as a whack job in private. And... Yeah, that's pretty obvious, right? Anyone with common sense can see that Donald Trump is unstable, he's an imbecile, he's narcissistic, he only cares about himself, but they can't say that because they know the damage that Trump can do to the overall GOP apparatus. And it's just, it's to think about the possibilities is uh, hilarious, but because this is America, Probably the most boring outcome will end up coming to fruition where Trump just wins the GOP nomination outright and doesn't have to run third party. But even though I'm worried about Ron DeSantis more so than Donald Trump and the damage that he can cause, in a way, I'm kind of rooting for Ron DeSantis to win the GOP primary, assuming that Trump will be so butthurt 
that he mounts an independent challenge and just sinks Ron DeSantis and himself and all of Republicans. That would be incredible. So remember, when it comes to Donald Trump, there's only one thing to keep in mind. Anything that he's saying is exclusively to benefit himself. And that's it. Period. Full stop. And this here is no different. Scapegoating over abortion and extremists, that's no different. It's all just about him and whether or not he still can be the biggest influence peddler, have the most influence in the Republican Party. And people will doubt whether or not his word is liable or whether or not he still has the clout if they view him instead of abortion extremists as the reason why the GOP underperformed in 2022. So it's always about Trump at the end of the day, but I'm preaching to the choir because all of you know that. Home Depot's 93-year-old billionaire co-founder Bernard Marcus has some thoughts about American workers, and I'm sure that you'll be not very surprised to learn that what he has to say isn't just vapid and wrong, but it's also downright infuriating, so you've been warned. The Independent explains, the billionaire co-founder of Home Depot has claimed Americans are too lazy, fat, and stupid to work, and that socialism is to blame. Mr. Marcus, who has an estimated net worth of $8.9 billion, said in the interview that socialism was was now why nobody works, nobody gives a damn. Just give it to me, send me money, I don't want to work, I'm too lazy, I'm too fat, I'm too stupid, he told the Financial Times. The woke people have taken over the world, he told the Financial Times. You know, I imagine today they can't attack me, I'm 93, who gives a crap about Bernie Marcus? Well, none of us give a crap about you, but we do care about the money that you stole from your workers. But I love how He's living in this alternate reality where the woke people took over the world and they installed socialism. I mean, I wasn't aware that we won. Did you hear the news, comrades? We have socialism. We have achieved socialism in the United States. And now, because we have socialism, we can choose to not work and just collect the check from the government. I don't know if you got the memo, but he's telling us that now they lost and we won. <laughs> I mean, it's ironic that he calls workers stupid when he claims that we have socialism in a late stage capitalist society. But basically, when he says, just give it to me, send me money, I don't want to work, that's literally what he did, right? He may have co-founded Home Depot, but that company would be nothing without its workers. So while he just barked orders at them, he collected money while his workers did everything. His workers were being exploited while his wealth continued to grow and grow and grow. So it's ironic that he claims that workers are the ones who are lazy when executives and CEOs are the most useless additions to corporations. Now, I'm sure you'll be surprised also to learn that this billionaire has a strong affinity for capitalism. And I want to read what he has to say, because what he says here, it really gives us some insight into how twisted his mentality is. He says, capitalism is the basis of Home Depot. Millions of people have earned this success and had success, Mr. Marcus told the Financial Times in an interview published on Thursday. I'm talking manufacturers, vendors and distributors and people who work for us who have been able to enrich themselves by the journey of Home Depot. That's the success. That's why capitalism works. Except capitalism works for people like you, but not your workers who have not been able to enrich themselves. He's actually claiming 
that Home Depot's employees have enriched themselves because they work at Home Depot. Okay, well, we can actually look this stuff up. So let's look at how Home Depot has uh, treated the executives compared to just rank and file employees. Bernie Marcus is worth an estimated $8.8 billion, although the independent claimed $8.9 billion. Still, he's worth billions of dollars. Home Depot's current CEO, Edward Decker, is worth an estimated $49 million. But let's look at the employees. So if you're a cashier at Home Depot, you'll be making an average of $13 per hour or $27,000 per year. That is if you're lucky enough to achieve 40 hours per week. Now, merchandisers and sales associates make an average of $14.06 and $14.86 per hour or $29,031 thousand nearly respectively and these are estimates by the way warehouse associates only fare a little bit better at home depot making over thirty three thousand dollars per year but senior management does do pretty well at one hundred thirty seven thousand dollars on average per year but a majority of Home Depot employees believe that they're not paid fairly because they're not, with 46% of more than 1,000 people believing that they're not paid fairly. So Bernard Marcus is full of shit when he claims that Home Depot has enriched workers. It's enriched you and CEOs and executives and shareholders, but it has not enriched workers. To a lesser extent, it has enriched management, but still, that pales into comparison to the amount of money that the CEOs have been able to make from these corporations. And I say corporations more broadly speaking because Home Depot isn't an exception to the rule. It is the rule. Lots of these multinational corporations exploit their employees and expect them to be perfectly happy working full time and still not being able to pay the bills. See, I don't know why Bernard Marcus came to this conclusion. I mean, aside from ignorance, but I'm assuming like he walked through a Home Depot and goes through these stores and he sees these really unhappy, sad people who are working there. And he thinks, wow, it must be because they'd rather not work because they're lazy and they don't want to do anything. But in actuality, it's because they're being exploited. They're not lazy. And when you look at the Economic Policy Institute's policy pay gap, they dismantle this notion that workers are lazy. Workers are more productive than they have ever been, but their wages aren't rising with productivity. And the gap has has continued to widen since this trend began in the 1980s. But yet he incorrectly claims that workers aren't as productive and they're lazy and that laziness can be attributed to socialism that we've obviously achieved here in the United States in the year 2023. But no, we don't have socialism. And even if he hates socialism, I at least expect you to have like a somewhat coherent definition of it, especially if you are this much of a sim for capitalism, wouldn't you know the main alternative to capitalism? But no, it's because he's ignorant, so he doesn't have to learn these things. But socialism is when workers own the means of production, when workplace democracy has been achieved. And given that corporations like Home Depot are still run as if they're authoritarian regimes by tyrannical executives, is evidence that we have not yet achieved socialism. I mean, these corporations, if you think about it, aren't any different than these authoritarian countries that are resource rich where you have a dictator that just like keeps all of the profits from oil for example and doesn't share that wealth with the population the same is true for these corporations where they exploit their employees and they don't give them back the money that they make for the company so there is an alternative to capitalism and yes that is workplace democracy that is socialism 
So I want to share a video from Professor Richard Wolf where he explains this alternative. And then when we come back, I have a couple of examples of how that would work and what that would look like in practice that I'll share with you. We would like enterprises to be governed not only by the workers who work there. In other words, we're focused on democratizing the workplace. And step one is stopping a small, unaccountable minority, the capitalist way, from running enterprises and giving that over to the democracy of all those who work there. But that's only step one. Step two is to make enterprises also accountable and responsible to the communities in which they exist and the customers whom they serve. And there has to be a way to make the decision-making democratic first in terms of the workers who work there and who in the most immediate and total sense depend on that enterprise, but also, also, the community where the enterprise is located, which is affected by its decisions, and the customers who are likewise affected by its decisions. So we tend to move in the direction of a kind of co-determination, if you like, co-decision-making, in which a particularly important place, because of their important dependence on these decisions, is given to the workers. But there has to be representation voting authority, veto power, if you like, on the part of the communities and the customers, because they too are stakeholders in what a good democratic economic system would work like. So it's a process of moving democratically away from the autocracy of capitalism inside enterprises, opening it up first to the workers, and then step two, to the communities where they're located and the customers whom they serve. Beautifully put. Now, the reason why this system is preferable and why more and more people want a socialist system is because capitalism isn't benefiting them. So let's say, for example, a corporation makes $10 billion in profit in a year. Rather than just having the executives unilaterally choose what to do with that extra money, oftentimes they buy back their own stocks, you can have workers collectively vote on what to do with that money. And it can benefit everyone as opposed to shareholders or executives. Workers can choose to instead increase pay for everyone across the board or increase benefits. But the difference is a democratic decision is being made in this system. Whereas with capitalism, you don't get to choose what your company does. They just impose their will on you and you are forced to do what they want. They even control your speech. They control what you can say, how you express yourself with your clothing. They can choose whether or not you're allowed to have tattoos, what types of hairstyles you have. These are tyrannical organizations, but yet we don't view corporations as authoritarian or democratic in the same way that we view countries as authoritarian and democratic. And I think that we need to view them that way because we're at these corporations, these jobs, our employers, for the majority of the days of our lives. So we should at least have more of a say over what they do, what decisions they make. We should be able to, if we live in a community, say that a particular oil company can't frack in our backyard and poison our water because these are decisions that are being made by executives that have no stake in the communities that they're exploiting.
So if we had democratic control of these corporations, you can imagine how things would be a little bit different. I don't believe in utopia, so it wouldn't be the end-all be-all, but it would be much better than the current system where we just have corporations as dictatorships. I mean, why do you think so many corporations like Starbucks and Amazon are against unionization? It's because this employer-employee relationship is inherently exploitative, and when workers collectively bargain, they have more leverage, and the nature of that relationship relationship changes. So these corporations, they function more effectively for themselves in the current state if they're able to just unilaterally make decisions about what the company does with the wealth that their workers produce. But when workers get a say, that's when things change and that's what they're afraid of. That's why they're so afraid of socialism. But ironically, as I stated earlier, individuals like Bernie Marcus don't realize that people wouldn't be interested in socialism in the first place if they weren't so damn greedy. But they have had to have it all. Every penny that they could extract from their employees, any way that they could cut corners, cut benefits, they did it all because they were so greedy, leaving people desperate. So no, workers in America aren't fat, stupid, and lazy. They're exploited and they're tired of the exploitation and that's why they're currently dissatisfied. But people like Bernie Marcus don't realize that because they live in a bubble and you know, if capitalism was so beneficial to them, then why change it? Why would you not fight to maintain the status quo that made you grotesquely wealthy? So that's what we're seeing here. But just the fact that he's so worried about socialism is a really good sign. And this is why we have to educate our coworkers, our peers about workplace democracy and the importance of socialism. Because the current system isn't just unsustainable for workers, it's unsustainable for the planet. And the quicker that we move on from capitalism, the better off humanity will be. Conservative creeps have long been obsessed with LGBTQ plus people, but over the course of the last year or so, they've inexplicably chosen to make drag queens the focal point of their moral panic, and their hysteria is reaching absurd new levels. For example, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis literally launched a probe into a Christmas drag show held in Fort Lauderdale and Miami, but it gets even better yet because if you live in Texas, well... A conservative decided to create a hotline so you can report drag shows in the event they occur in your area. I'm not joking about this. So it's called Defend Our Kids Texas, which provides conservatives with a hotline to report drag shows in their area. Now, in response to this new hotline, Matt on Twitter pointed out that conservatives in Texas who want to protect kids should maybe look at the 10 churches that he decided to randomly name where pastors have been accused of child abuse. And these are recent cases. So I decided to just randomly choose three of those to investigate them. And Matt is absolutely correct. For example, Pastor Walther of Faith Baptist was arrested and charged with possession and distribution of child pornography. Not a peep from conservatives about this. Worship leader Jonathan Enzi, who's the son of the pastor of Living Way Church, was sentenced to prison for literally sexually assaulting a teenage girl that he knew since she was nine. He also sent her sexually explicit messages and requested explicit videos from her. Nothing from conservatives about this as well. Pastor Pounds of the First Assembly of God in Vernon, Texas, was charged with sexual assault of a child with another victim coming forward in 2021. And yet conservatives haven't talked about that or any of the other pastors who have been convicted of child abuse at any of these churches. 
I mean, they are literally giving actual pedophiles a pass while just going after people who are innocent. I'm sure that the actual pedophiles thank them for their services here because they're absolutely running cover, wittingly or unwittingly, for actual child predators here, and it's genuinely disturbing. But the goal of Defend Our Kids Texas is to expose attacks on our children's innocence by uncovering and highlighting the left's public displays of sexual degeneracy. Now, the creator of this website is Sarah Gonzalez, who is a right-wing propagandist for The Blaze TV. And in an interview with Tucker Carlson, we got a couple of examples of what she described as sexual degeneracy, drag queens in the company of children now what you're going to see is phenomenal because she's really proud of this so much so that she pinned this video to her twitter profile but she thinks this actually proves her case when the opposite is true so take a look at some of the examples that they're highlighting as sexual degeneracy this is supposedly child abuse according to sarah take a look yeah i i think that there is a, a subsector of adults within these organizations that are not maybe don't agree with it but they don't have the courage to speak up they're scared of being canceled and my message to them is you have to be on the right side of history here because eventually we will win out and you don't want to be caught uh, on the wrong side or or you know excuse this behavior it's absolutely inexcusable and anyone who does not stand up and speak out about it is just as culpable quite frankly Republican or Democrat what I don't I don't even understand I mean maybe I'm just dumb but why would you want to get kids involved and we had this pretty fair deal where people you know you go do your thing I'll do my thing I mean that, that that's been the case in this country for the 50 years I've been here and all of a sudden it's like no we have to get kids involved what I mean why why would you want kids involved yeah, I mean, I believe, Tucker, that it's a more sinister uh, attempt by the left to, you know, they, they want this radical country. The only way that they can achieve that is through complete chaos and confusion. And what is the best way to confuse children? Confuse them about their sexuality, confuse them about their gender, expose them to things that their little brains are not ready for yet. That is how they are confusing children. It is leading to chaos. And Big Daddy government, of course, can be there to pick, a, pick us all up and take care of us at the end of it. Incredible. I love how we're supposed to take this person seriously as they claim that children are in danger when the evidence for said danger is a drag performer dressed as a unicorn fully clothed. I mean, if you're trying to prove our point for us, you're doing a great job. And furthermore, I just have to point out again, zero mention from Sarah during this interview of the threat posed by pastors to children here. It's almost like she's assisting the pedophiles, the actual pedophiles, as they prey on children, and she's trying to distract all of us and focus on drag queens. Yeah, while you're doing this, actual abuse is taking place, Sarah. So you're not a serious person, but she decided to create this hotline, and um, I think you all know what happened. It got trolled. And some of the responses shared underneath Matt's tweet about this were hilarious, but others were pretty poignant, where people were serious and they talked about actual abuse that's happening. And spoiler alert, they're not going on at drag shows. Farts McGee reports, your mom's house has the location of a drag show and adds, I'm having gay sex with your mom and she worships my strap. This person puts churches as the location and says, maybe look into your own churches instead of innocent people doing good. I have never once been harmed by the LGBTQ community. In the church, I was sexually assaulted multiple times. Emily posted the contents of an article about a pastor who was charged with child abuse as Ted Cruz, of course. This person writes, maybe put all this effort into something that actually fucking matters. Child hunger, school shootings, teen suicide, the list goes on and on and on. And you'd rather do this shit 
absolutely pathetic. This person adds, reevaluate your choices, please. We've got a pee pee poo poo and another pee pee poo poo. Somebody reported Trump for his association with Epstein because, I mean, you'd think that they'd care about that, but of course they don't. And there were more. But as for my submission, I, of course, decided to submit something on behalf of Matt Walsh. And I simply linked them to the article about the worship leader at Living Way Church in Conroe, Texas, who went to prison for literally grooming and sexually assaulting a minor. So there you have it. I'm not going to link you to this website because I don't want you to give them clicks. But if you are planning on trolling, don't do that. Trolling is very bad and I never condone trolling. You all know me. But I will say that Sarah Gonzalez, if she's actually earnest in her concern about child abuse, maybe if you were to submit a link or two to actual abuse taking place in Texas, seems like it's occurring a lot of churches, you know, I would encourage her to maybe read that if you want to send that to her. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I mean, she's the one who tells us she's concerned about child abuse. So there's a lot of abuse happening, but it's just not taking place where she says it's taking place. And it seems like this isn't about child abuse to her. She's more concerned about hatred for LGBTQ plus people. But if she actually is serious about trying to curtail pedophilia or get these child predators away from children, well, there's an abundance of evidence that this is taking place in churches. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that she wouldn't mind if you submitted a report pointing this out to her. 2022 has not been kind to Elon Musk, to put it lightly. Not only did he choose to make one of the dumbest decisions ever by purchasing Twitter in the first place, but he bought it for far more than it's worth. And in addition to that, Tesla's shares have plummeted. He went from being the richest person in the world to becoming the only person in history to lose $200 billion in net worth. And perhaps worse for him is that he's learned that most people don't like him. In fact, they view him as a complete joke, and he's even the laughingstock on his own platform now. So to say that 2022 was a tumultuous year for Elon Musk would be an understatement, but he seemingly responded to his fall from grace on Twitter with a really sad tweet saying, 12 months ago, I was person of the year. Yeah. And now look at you. A lot can change in a year, but for you, sir, all I have is the world's tiniest violin. And that was pretty much everyone's response. So they replied to him when he made that tweet and they roasted him as they usually do. Randy Bryce wrote, setting $44 billion aflame can do wonders. Brandon Friedman shared a tweet from Donnie Snarko, which reads, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. Travis Allen writes, this year, you're the worst person of the year. Molly Jong Fast says, before you started tweeting, there's a lesson here. John Marshall says, hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Christina Wong just juxtaposed his Time Person of the Year cover with a Time Opinion piece critiquing Elon Musk's erratic behavior. Marty Shannon writes, now you're a type of person of the year. Alejandra Caraballo says, amazing what transphobia does to a person. You destroy $200 billion of your wealth, set a social media company on a path to bankruptcy, and you nuked your public image, all because you didn't like a transphobic joke being taken down by Twitter. And that went on and on and on. And really, if you ever just want to see a good Elon Musk roast session, all you have to do is look at the replies to any of his tweets. And there are countless people relentlessly shitting on him. Now, there's a plethora of reasons to hate Elon Musk, from his douchey demeanor 
to the fact that he's a greedy billionaire, but I specifically can't stand him because of the impact that he has on society and his reach, even if he's more hated now, has been amplified because he is the owner of Twitter and he is actively trying to make Twitter a worse platform, which has deleterious impacts on society itself. For example, as Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams explains, as advertisers depart Twitter in the wake of Elon Musk's recent takeover, the billionaire owner continues to shake up the social media platform, which on Tuesday relaxed a ban on political and issue-based advertising put in place over three years. When then-CEO Jack Dorsey announced the ban in October of 2019, he explained that this isn't about free expression. This is about paying for reach, and paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. While advertising was Twitter's primary revenue source pre-Musk, it's not clear that the policy change will notably benefit the company from a financial standpoint. Before the ban, political ad spending for the U.S. 2018 midterm cycle was less than $3 million. Twitter's total revenue was $3 billion in 2018, and in 2021, it topped $5 billion, $4.51 billion of which came from ads. A few weeks after Musk bought the company in October, Media Matters for America revealed that 50 of its 100 top advertisers, which collectively accounted for nearly $2 billion in spending on the platform since 2020 and over $750 million in advertising in 2022 alone, had announced or seemingly stopped advertising on Twitter. Now, I think that the last paragraph does indeed give us some insight into his true motivations. Yes, political ad spending didn't account for much compared to other ad revenue that Twitter rakes in, but still, $3 million, that's $3 million more that Twitter currently doesn't have. So if he brings back political ads then that's just more money in his pocket. And he is desperate after losing $200 billion of his own net worth. So he wants to make this company profitable, and he's going to do that even if it makes society demonstrably worse. Now, the thing about political ads and why I think that Twitter was right in the first place to ban them is that they are incredibly deceptive. We don't know who funds them oftentimes. A super PAC from either party can just create an ad that's completely fictitious, smear somebody, and... There's basically no accountability for that. I mean, Republicans, they do this, but Democrats can also do the same exact thing. In fact, they do do this. I've seen ads. You've seen the mailers that are incredibly deceptive that get, that get sent to our homes uh, every election season. So to allow that on Twitter means he's simply allowing for more misinformation. And this isn't even an issue about free speech. So I hate that, like, every single policy change that he makes is supposed, supposedly under the pretense of free speech. No, this isn't about free speech. It's about money. Am I denying the speech of some crypto company that wants to advertise for a minute in one of my videos? No, I'm simply not making an unethical decision. I'm simply saying, no, you don't get to use my platform to spread your nonsense, to scam other people, to deceive other people. So this isn't even about free speech. But in 2023 America, every single thing that Elon Musk does is analyzed under the prism of how does this impact free speech when it doesn't? This is a financial decision, period, end of story. But things like this are why people hate Elon Musk in the first place. But to be fair to him, it's not like the 2019 policy change was that great because there were some loopholes that did still lead to deceptive ads. As digital rights activist Evan Greer points out via Twitter, Twitter allowed banks to run ads about environmental initiatives, but didn't allow environmental activists to run ads about those banks' fossil fuel investments. So what Twitter views as political is highly subjective in the first place, but still now to add 
super PACs buying ads into the, the equation is going to make the next election even more miserable than it already is likely to be with Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis at the helm for Republicans. But either way, you know, it's just another bad policy failure of Elon Musk on Twitter. And the platform overall has become a hellscape. We see like these huge changes that he makes, but it's the small things that he does day after day that gradually make the platform a worse place. But as he continues to destroy Twitter and run it into the ground, people are going to continue to dunk on him because he's a joke and he doesn't know what he's doing. So this is why people don't like him. So I'm glad that he's at least aware of the fact that he once was loved, but now not so much. People view him as a fucking joke, and rightfully so. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.